0: Hi, sarah hi allison sarah we need to talk about death oh really oh that's pretty dramatic way to start the show <laughs> have you thought about your own death whether you'll go for burial or cremation
1: wow um well you know it's interesting this came up recently um and it turns out i actually don't really have very strong feelings about it. Uh, well, I mean, I won't be there. I kind you of know, figure so it's... So you're leaving it to everyone else to yeah, pick up the... the tr- exactly. The... And I, I, I guess that's where I realised that maybe making a decision might make it easier for those surviving me.
0: Well, whatever you do decide, you only have two options here in France. It's either burial or cremation. And out of the 610,000 people that died in France last year, around two thirds were buried and one third were cremated. Hmm. Now, given that you're such an environmentally friendly woman, what about your carbon footprint? Have you thought about that?
1: Ah, For my death? Yeah. It's not something that's really crossed my mind, though. I have heard of this eco-friendly funeral movement. Indeed.
0: And it's kind of taking off in France, slowly but surely. And people in France are really sort of tackling this question what's the point of living a green life if in the end when you die you sort of throw it all away by having a very un-green friendly funeral.
1: Right so I'm taking the burial or cremation either one of them is particularly eco-friendly.
0: Not great. A study um, done by Paris City Hall in 2017 concluded that if you factor in all the graves, the concrete vaults, all the marble, the imported granite from China, everything that's used in traditional French cemeteries and the upkeep of all those cemeteries. Then burials turn out to generate about three and a half times more greenhouse gases than cremation. And what's more, burials pollute the ground because of all these chemicals that are used in the embalming process, which then can seep into the soil and the water table. And by the way, it's worth remembering that France and the UK are the only two countries in Europe that allow this. Um, Elsewhere, if you're embalmed, then you have to be sealed off from the earth in a real hermetic coffin.
1: Huh. All right. So burial sounds like it's out. But what about cremation? It does use energy, right? It's burning. It
0: certainly does. Each cremation releases about 233 kilos of CO2. That's about the same as if you took a medium-haul flight by yourself. Also, crematoriums are responsible for around a third of mercury emissions in France. And since 2018, crematoriums have to install filters to try and reduce that, but still.
1: So, okay, so no burial, no cremation. (laughs) What are the other options? Like, dumped in the ocean or something? Yeah, that would be good, but it's
0: not. allowed in France, I'm afraid. How about human composting? Oh, huh. well, That's not allowed either. But anyway, it's very good in that you don't take up much space. And after one year, you basically disappear and trees can grow. But that's on not the compost. in
1: France right
0: now. That's, that's not allowed yet. And then there's something called aquamation that uses heat, pressure and water with high alkaline level. Uh, all of that will reduce your body to a pile of bones in just 12 hours, and then it, uh, that's turned into ashes. Um, and that's, uh, that's really uses hardly energy at all. But the ultimate green end is something called a sky burial, where your corpse is placed on a mountaintop for birds of prey to devour. Mm. But for the moment, I think it's only Tibetan monks that are that are Zen enough to do that,
1: and and obviously probably not allowed in France. Most are... definitely not, <laughs> not on Mont Blanc in no, any case. No. So what are we to do in France if we want to be eco in our death?
0: Green cemeteries, Ah. that's what I can offer you for the moment (laughs) as a step in the right direction. The Paris region has just got its very first in Evry, just south of town, several more are going to be opening very soon. In a nutshell everything in and around the cemetery has to be biodegradable, so no concrete vaults, the coffins and urns have to be made either of cardboard or an unvarnished locally sourced wood, there's no granite headstones, there's just wooden markers, there's no embalming there and any clothes that you wear in the coffin have to be made from natural fibers No plastic shoes accessories and certainly no plastic flowers now the town of Nyon in the west of France opened the country's very first natural cemetery in 2014 its charter isn't quite as strict as the Paris one of course Paris had to outdo everyone else but Nyon was a pioneer in this so I went along to the cimetière Soushi to get a feel for the place
2: so here we are in the natural cemetery of Souchy. When you open the iron gate at Suchet Cemetery, you enter a garden. We have some pines, green oaks, ash, lime trees, yes, acacia. Maple.
0: Yves-Marie Ferret is showing me trees. round. She landscaped the four hectares of park, fitting the graves around the existing trees and plants.
2: Generally, when we create a cemetery, we design the paths, the graves, and after we planted trees. And here it was the contrary, because the, the garden was here, and we put some graves all around. So in a way, the humans adapt to nature
0: mm-hmm. rather than mm. vice versa yeah,
2: yeah. 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 that's
0: it <laughs> 120 people are shall we say resting here
2: so here at the
0: back there are all the, um, the coffins some are buried in graves with fresh flowers on top there are no headstones but there may be a limestone plaque with or without a name a large wooden cross rests on top of a recently
2: dug grave. So here we are in the places for urns made with woods um, or um, cardboard, yes, like the
0: coffins. Other people have been cremated. Their ashes are in urns buried
2: beneath slabs of local limestone. And we also have the possibility to spread the ashes in the garden of Ashes, And so where is the Garden of Ashes? In the middle, (laughs) let's just have a little look. So here in the Garden of Ashes, everybody could bring some flowers. The Garden of Ashes
0: is a shared area in the middle, where a few dozen people chose to have their ashes scattered. Their names are engraved on metal leaves, blowing in the breeze on a nearby tree. Monique Châtigny has come to visit her husband Bernard, she points to one of the metal leaves which bears his name. She replaces several wilting deep red chrysanthemums with fresh ones. I come and bring flowers often, I like my little walk, she says, it's a garden, his ashes are here along with other people, but it was his choice and I respected it. When I saw the garden I immediately said, this is the place. For me, it's not a cemetery. It's totally different from the cemetery next door with its tombstones. When my grandson came here for the first time, he said, "Oh, granddad must be so happy
3: here."
0: <gasps> Honestly, it was just the right place for him. Suche's natural cemetery is reserved for local residents. It's steadily grown in popularity. But it took a while for locals to accept the graves without headstones, the lack of monuments, the fact there is grass on the pathways rather than
2: gravel, and that nature is left to run its course. People were afraid of the nature in cemeteries. Uh, some people said that uh, we made uh, a cemetery for dogs. we we only buried dogs like that, <laughs> but not the humans. It was non-respectful mm. for humans. Mm. But it was just at the beginning. We also know that the funeral companies uh, were not very happy of this project, and maybe they had uh, transmitted their resistant to the people, for them it's not uh, um, interesting. uh, They can't make much money from it.
4: (laughs) A
0: retired man in jogging gear stops to look at some of the plants.
4: I've
0: come several times since the cemetery was created not really to mourn, he says, because I don't know anyone who's buried here, but I think it's a wonderful thing. This is where I want to be buried. The fact it's natural with no vaults or tombstones, just coffins buried in the ground, well, it's a complete return to nature,
4: isn't it?
0: I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool ecologist. I just love being in contact with nature, and, well, there's no better way to connect with nature than this. I often think about death, and I'm nearer to the end than the beginning of life, but it's relaxing to come here to have a sense of communion with people, even if I don't know
4: them. Yves-Marie
0: Ferrer admits there may be limits as to how natural the cemetery can be. Some of the graves now have wooden frames around them. It wasn't part of the original design, but a concession
2: to the needs of some families to mark out their territory. We wanted to create a very green area, very open area without borders like in USA or uh, UK but we quickly understood that the families the French families wanted to limit around their graves they don't want the neighbors uh, to get too close so they, they put some, uh, some wood all around, uh, some borders all around the graves. Mm-hmm. So we accepted this uh, very typical French uh, desires. I think the people is not really ready to go to green, green cemeteries. So it's the beginning, the transition. <laughs> Maybe we were too avant-gardist <laughs> for the people, but we were the first ones. Bringing more nature in cemeteries is very difficult in France (laughs) because of all the culture, the religion, uh, but things are moving. It's interesting there that there seems
1: to be this this specificity in France of wanting to mark your grave and, I guess, like, stake out your space even in death.
0: Yeah, that's what she's saying. Maybe other cultures have that too, but Mm. certainly that's been her experience. And you have to think of these traditional French cemeteries where, you know, we know them, don't we? Everyone has their spot in this big tomb. They're made of concrete. There are row upon row of tombstones, gravel on the floor, very little greenery. And these cemeteries tend to be walled. So a bit hostile in a way.
1: Huh. Well, I mean, hostile, but also sort of works of art to some extent. I guess yeah. like the Père Lachaise here in Paris, you kind of go in and it's, it's a monumental thing.
0: Yeah, it's a bit sort of Napoleonic, isn't <laughs> it? But in smaller towns, um, they tend to be on the outskirts, very often cut off from the people as if somehow death was a contagious disease. But this didn't used to be the case. People in the French countryside uh, a couple of centuries back would grow trees that would then be used to make their coffins and there was a lot more nature in the cemeteries. But then a law was passed in the late 19th century which required cemeteries to be built outside towns for hygiene reasons. And then in the 1960s, pesticides were introduced in France. Everything got cleaned up and sanitised. All the weeds got destroyed. Greenery was cut back and people gradually lost touch with cemeteries. And then you have to remember the heritage of the Catholic Church in France, even though France is basically a secular country, the Catholic Church is still the, if you like, majority religion and that's also part of why change is a bit slow here and why the Burials and lined coffins remain popular. There's still an emphasis on the integrity of the body in Catholicism.
1: Although it sounds like, you know, with these new green cemeteries and just thinking about, you know, alternative ways, things might be changing.
0: Yeah. And especially young people, they are becoming a bit less religious, we understand, and certainly more interested in green issues. And they would seem to be more willing to at least talk about death. And in some places, in cities especially, they're spurring on things like death cafes, Mm. where people can come and chat about preparing their own funeral or about their experience of bereavement. There's one called the apéro de la mort, the aperitif of death. It was set up in Paris nearly a year ago by the writer-journalist Sarah Dumont. She runs a blog called Happy End. I chatted to her in a cafe about overcoming what she said was the taboo of talking about death in France. People
4: need to talk about death. A study shows that 42% of persons in France think that they cannot talk about death with their family, with their friends. So the idea of the Apéro de la mort is uh, to give them a space to speak about death. It's kind of surprising, isn't it, that we can no longer talk about something that will affect everybody in the world. People think that if they talk about death, they are going to die. So Les Apéro de la mort wants to show that, no, you can take a glass of wine, to talk about death and you will have a nice evening with people. So there is a
0: demand for information or is it also people just sharing their experience of losing someone?
4: Yeah, the people who come are very different each time but there is women who lost their children or who lost their husband, they want to talk about that. But there are also people who work, who are funeral um, directors or professionals in this area. Of course funeral directors etc it's also a business are they open to the idea of maybe organizing funerals differently things are changing because we are becoming less religious so now in france one out of three funerals are secular so we need to find new rituals and we need to think about new places. I think we should be able to organize a funeral in a cafe. For my father we went in La Belle Villoise, it's a big concert hall in Paris and I observed that people who were there were more relaxed and moreover, they, they clapped. Yeah. So I was very surprised but I, I think it was a good thing because they felt they could uh, express what they feel. So professionals Realize that they need to change, and they need to propose new things. You organized the funeral for your dad mm-hmm. in a cafe, but are there many cafes which would be comfortable with having a funeral? I asked the question to many cafes. They told me, "Oh no, we cannot have a coffin on a place, because if people see that, they wouldn't want any more come in our cafe. I think it's not true, but they are anticipated that people will fear about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mistake, and I hope that I can one day uh, have many cafés who told me, OK, you can come with your coffee, no problem, and I hope people could um, have the chance I had.
1: I guess I've never encountered a funeral in a café, but why not? I guess I can raise a glass to that. A happy end. And uh, did you take out the garbage this morning on your way to work? I almost did. (laughs) You would have put it in the bin, though, at the bottom of your building. I absolutely did.
0: I put it in the green bin.
1: In French, you might have said you threw it in the poubelle. It's another one of these words in French that comes from someone's name. Um, This guy is Eugène Poubelle, who uh, this week, 136 years ago, signed a decree as the prefect of Paris, at the time he was essentially mayor, that required building managers to provide containers for garbage. The decree of November 24th, 1883, required building owners to provide residents with covered garbage receptacles. And he put in a system of regular pickup at the time, of course, with horse-drawn carts.
0: That's amazing. I imagine at the time, the streets must have been absolutely filthy.
1: Yeah, there were 2 million people already living in Paris at the time. All of these cities were developing massively with the Industrial Revolution. People were coming in and garbage just was kind of tossed into the streets. Ragpickers were going through picking up you know, what they could. It stank, it was unsanitary. Other cities in, in Europe and the US were starting at the time to introduce municipal street cleaning, uh, city dumps, incinerators, all these sort of technological ways of trying to clean up these cities. Poubelle systematized it for the city of Paris. A
0: welcome reprieve indeed. But you can imagine how cheesed off some of the people must have been having to take their rubbish down the stairs instead of just like you know, casting caution to the wind and
1: chucking it out the window into the drains. Well, uh, possibly, but they were actually not that happy, not necessarily for that so much, as uh, building owners didn't want to pay for oh, the cost of mommy. these receptacles. Yeah. Um, and there was also outcry over the fact that these rag pickers would be put out of business. Um, all the garbage would be put into these bins, and the city would pick it up, and I guess they would reap the benefits of it. The Figaro newspaper at the time wrote that this would put 30,000 people out of work. Now, poor people is their only way of working. You know, you could say maybe it's not the best kind of work. But, you know, they raised outrage there. Um, they also raised the idea that there was a British company that had secured a contract with Paris to take over the lucrative trade, which the paper said was worth millions. It was actually that article published the day after the decree in November 1883 that coined this term poubelle boxes for those containers, later that got shortened to just poubelle, which is now a word in French for garbage. Yeah, I use it myself every day. <laughs> so the name stuck, even if the concept
0: itself wasn't that popular.
1: Yeah, yeah. So at first, of course, the the containers weren't replaced after a year or so. People were really grumpy about it, but it did stick. Uh, the concept even spread to other cities in France. And, you know, obviously that's what we do today. Interestingly, that original decree that poubelle had provided for separating garbage into three, I guess you would say recycling. There were three containers, one for organic waste, like food and other bits, one for pottery, glass, and oyster shells, um, and another for paper and rags. It didn't last because I guess it wasn't put in place well um, and the idea of sorting really wasn't reintroduced until the next century when we really started you know, embracing and focusing on recycling.
0: But basically then Sarah, Eugène Poubel, in a way he was the father of our present day system of recycling, we still have three bins, Mm -hmm. he was
1: one step ahead. Yeah, I guess maybe we should have been named Monsieur Propre, Mr Clean. Alison, how long have you been a Parisian?
0: Since 1997, officially, but I'm probably not sulky enough to be a serious contender for the title.
1: (laughs) Um, I guess I was actually born here, so you could say I've been Parisian all my life. But um, really, I've been living here for the last 13 years. And I agree, I think I'm not ever really fully embrace the sort of gruff attitudes of the Parisians. Yeah, there
0: is a tendency to sort of value the smirk, the sort of half smile rather than a, some kind of hearty, full-blown laugh, which is considered to be a bit uncouth. And, know, and right? maybe a bit too American
1: <laughs> for those I Americans in that. the room. Um, our listeners, of course, maybe you've noticed when you visited the city that as opposed to the rest of France, Parisians are gruff, uh, servers and shopkeepers aren't terribly attentive. Um, someone who's really really noticed this is Olivier Giraud. He's an actor and he created a one-man show called How to Become Parisian in One Hour. He's originally from Bordeaux. He came to Paris 15 years ago to work as a restaurant manager and he realized he was turning into that grumpy, gruff Parisian and it became really clear to him when he went to the U.S. and spent some time working in restaurants in Florida. The
3: most beautiful city in the world. City of love. City of lights. It's your stride.
1: <laughs> Paris,
0: I love you. We went to see the show and sat down with Olivier after the talk about what it means to be a Parisian, how he's changed over the last few years. And he says he realised how strange Parisians were when he was working in Florida.
3: When I was working at the restaurant, I had a lot of American customer and they asked me questions about Parisians. Yeah, we would like to go to Paris, but we're scared of Parisians and I was giving uh, advice.
1: Was that surprising to you no, to hear that?
3: of course not. Because, no, because I know like, we are not very nice with the tourists. Like uh, in America, if you're lost, they will help you. In Paris, you laugh and say, ah, okay, they're lost.
1: How much of this show is your own experience, and how much is it from observing and, and um, looking around?
3: I can say like uh, most uh, sort of the show, the, the taxi, road, the, the metro. Waits. When the doors are opening, just push everybody, <laughs> then <laughs> run and get a free seat. It's the point. If you look on your right, I'm sure you will see an old lady looking at you with a little smile. When my wife was pregnant, uh, nobody stand up when they see a pregnant woman. It's not your fault she's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> they you look pray. at them like, oh, it's not possible. I've got to see it, it's mine. If she's pregnant, it's her fault. So if you uh, read a book about Paris, uh, I'm sure you will see some uh, picture of some Parisian couple uh, kissing on a bridge some flowers, macaroons, champagne, so romantic. That's, that's only a commercial for
0: Paris. <laughs> <laughs> There's one point where you say yeah, half of Parisians are single, the other half are miserable, they're depressed. And of course you, you, you talk quite a lot about how expensive it is and how dirty it is. So how much of the show is also about making foreigners understand Parisians a bit better? Actually yeah. almost a serious point about maybe you actually it yeah. looks so chocolate box that life can be quite difficult. And
3: and yeah, now we're having strikes all the time. Uh, People are very, very stressed at work. All my friends in Paris, they're like burnout completely.
1: Life has gotten much more expensive.
3: Much more expensive. In the companies, everybody's very overstressed. So uh, I don't think we're going to be like the nicest city in the world soon. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful, but it's hard for everybody. Everywhere in the world, people are saying, Parisian people, oh my God, they never smile. <laughs> people, what do you want to say? Like, hey, I'm a Parisian and I love my shitty life. Of course not. And sometimes I do have uh, a that they, they are, I'm sure they have a lot of money. So they're staying like in Georges V or Plaza. I say, no, we do have a great service. Yeah, but <laughs> you're staying at a Georges saint the room is like 3,000 euros. Of course, you have a nice service, but when you're a regular Parisian or tourist, it's not that easy.
1: Are you a miserable Parisian?
3: Uh, I'm not, uh, because I love my job, so not really, But when, when I came to Paris like 15 years ago, it was horrible. Uh, because like in the morning, it's a nightmare in the metro. During the day, you're overstressed. Then you in the metro again. You don't get that much money. It's like, why am I leaving? Why am I still here and I want to go to Provence or other country, then it's okay. I quit everything. Uh, I need a, a new life and now I'm very happy and I'm laughing about Paris now.
1: Well, I find it interesting. So this show is just all self-deprecation. So
3: in Paris, we don't have time to communicate a lot. So you never speak to somebody you don't know, even to your neighbor. Why?
1: You're, you're very mean to Parisians, and and by extension yourself. I mean, is this typical French humor?
3: Yeah, it is. I think French are very funny. They're very sarcastic. I try not to be too sarcastic because some, some like Americans. For example, it's very hard for them because they uh, French people we understand the sarcastic. And in, like in America, at the beginning, I was very sarcastic, and people didn't get my jokes. I was not funny in America. <laughs> like, you no, know, I was living in Florida, it was like 40 degrees. And I was saying, yeah, it's so cold today. And all, everybody said, no, it's hot. Like, yeah, I know, it's a joke. And <laughs> the first year, it was horrible. I said, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be sarcastic anymore. And I'm gonna try to be uh, new jokes, but not like this. For uh, the last part, I'm gonna pick somebody and I'm gonna ask you a few questions about the show. So if you, because-
0: a of the show is actually teaching people how to be a Parisian so you, you invite the audience to get involved a little bit yeah. and there's a, a nice little part at the end where you test one of the people in the audience to see how much of the lessons that you've mm. been teaching them uh, they've retained.
3: Who's is from Ireland? In the
0: second row. <laughs> <laughs> you know, among the audiences, is it always easy to find people to come up onto the stage?
3: Uh, for French it's very hard, they are very shy, we not volunteer. And if we compare French to Americans, the opposite. Because Americans are always, yeah, I want to go, I want to go. And and French, no. They think they will be judged. They're very stressed about that.
1: At at the end of the show, you kind of explain a little bit about how you tried to shop the show around in different theaters in Paris 10 years ago. And people are like, what? An English show in Paris, never going to work. What did you have to do to convince them?
3: It was a nightmare because um, everybody said no. Because that's a stupid idea. You're French. Why would you speak in English? It's like, yeah, but why not? I said, no, no, no way, impossible. And after one year, one, one theater owner said, okay, you can try once. And I tried, and it worked well, and I'm still here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And why do you think it has worked?
3: Because I, I think uh, Parisians attract everywhere in the world. Everybody would like to become Parisian, to classy Parisian, because when thing think about Parisian, they think about, like, uh, very classy, the way we would dress. And people from Provence they love about Parisians and Parisians love about themselves. Do you feel a little bit more Parisian now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's all we've got time for Spotlight on France. Our program today was mixed by Julien Magouarou. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, why not subscribe to the
0: podcast so you don't miss out on any episodes. Just look for Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr.